Well, this morning we're going to continue our study in the uh, book of Judges. So turn with me to chapter 2, and we're going to take a look at verses 6 through 23. Before we do that, though, let's pray. Lord God, we are, again, so thankful that we can gather this morning free of worry of persecution, Lord God, as so many of our brothers and sisters face right now in different countries. And may we take advantage of every opportunity we have in this free country to worship you and to proclaim your name. For, Lord God, I have no doubt there will be a day when that will not be allowed. And so, Lord God, until that day comes, we pray for revival within our church, revival within our country, and within the leadership of our, our country as well, Lord God, that you would open our president's eyes and ears and heart to hear you and everyone that surrounds him, and for those who are seeking to become president of the United States as well, Lord God, we pray that they would turn to you and repent and just lead us in a way that is glorifying to you. And we ask this now, and ask that you would teach us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, Judges. So in Judges chapter 2, just to give you, I need to give you a little bit of idea of where we're going here. If you've ever, I'm in Joshua, so that's really not going to work. Judges. Judges chapter 2. So, real quick. So, Judges chapter 2 is like a, it's going to repeat what Judges chapter 1 said, but it's like the, another side of a coin. So, on one side, you had just the facts by the narrator. And in chapter 2, what you have are some more facts, but you're really going to see it from God's point of view. Kind of like if you were to pull back the veil to see what is going on in the spiritual realm or how God sees it. We're really going to get God's view of the nation Israel. And so if you're like me, when you you like to read things chronologically, Judges doesn't do that, especially in the first two chapters. It's a it's a it's the license of the of the author, his literary license, the way that he's he's really giving you a background and setting it up for the rest of Judges. This is what's going on. This is an overview. This is what happens. And then he goes into more detail and talks about specific judges as we get into it. So this morning we're going to look at, as I said, the God of the covenant. So last week we looked at the covenant that were made, that's made with God between the nation of Israel and God. And this week I want to focus on really God's side of the covenant, how God handles the covenant. And some of this I, I mentioned in previous weeks, but we're going to see a lot more of it. And I did want to address, because it's relevant to what we're going to see right now, is, is that God uses all things for his glory. You know, John alluded to the craziness of our world, and the world's been crazy forever since the fall. But just for us now, we're seeing it, and it's real to us right now. Does that mean that God is not active, that God is, is turned his back or turned his eye to what's going on? Does God not care? Many people would say, well, if there was a God, there would be great peace and he would heal everything and stop all these things. But would that cause people to believe God? Just because there's peace in the world, does that mean everybody's going to believe in God? When there's great chaos, does does that mean people are going to believe in God because they're afraid? No, some people shake their fist at God in the midst of tragedy. Some people run and cling to God in the midst of tragedy. And in this section of scripture, you're going to see that. That God is going to use tragedy to really find out who believes in him. 
I read a quote earlier this week, and it's not going to come up, but it says, A smooth sea never made a skilled sailor. It's in those tough times that real sailors are made, not when it's calm and anybody could float on the ocean. It's when storms come and hard things come, and you know what? Come. And sometimes that's true for the believers. Our faith comes through during trials and hard times. It's easy to be a believer when everything's going good and God's blessing everything. It seems like he's watching over us, protecting us and blessing us. There's nothing wrong with praying for that because I pray for that. But our faith is made strong in the tough times. And so with that, let's look at Judges. And I'm going to read just the first. We're going to read six through ten to start with. And really talk about that and then move on to the next section. So in Judges 6, we're gonna, again, or Judges 2, I'm sorry, starting in verse 6. We're going to talk about the God of the covenant and his relationship with this new generation of Israelites that are coming onto the scene. So again, the author's going to take us back to Joshua. We're going to recount Joshua's death again. So here he goes. In verse 6, when Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who served Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord, who had seen, excuse me, the great work of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Timnath-Herez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. And all the generations also were gathered to their father. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. So let's stop here. So the author's telling us Joshua's dying. He dies and all the people that were with Joshua, that great generation that came out of the wilderness and conquered the promised land. All this generation is going to is dying is die and now is died off and they're buried. So all the next generation comes up and he's he's setting up so you could see why the nation Israel fell and look specifically at verse 10. One more time. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers and there arose another generation after them. This is key. Look at what it says who did not know the Lord. So number one, this relationship that God has with this new generation is, first of all, he's unknown to them. They don't know him like their fathers knew him. Okay, And there's probably a lot packed into the meaning of that, but let's just leave it there for now. And it says also, secondly, that they know nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. So this new generation didn't know the Lord. And this new generation had not experienced the work for themselves that God had done for the past generations. So you get this sense that they didn't understand history, right? And a lot of people don't care about history, right? Unfortunately, they don't. Well, I don't care what happened back in the 80s, the 70s, or even further than that. The 1500s, how does that affect me? Well, this is going on here. This generation, just one generation later, doesn't know the Lord. They don't know the works that God had done for their fathers. Now, was it that their previous generation didn't tell them? We don't know. Was it the previous, they didn't listen to the previous generation? 
or that they just didn't experience for themselves, right? Really, when something hits home is when it affects you personally, then it makes more sense. So whatever the reason was, the point is, is they didn't know God and they didn't know the works that he'd done in the past. Or maybe thought, well, God did that for them. How come he doesn't do it for us now? I don't know. We're not told. But that's something to, to keep in the back of your head as we go through this section. Remember, and then this is really God's interpretation of the events that happen in Judges. Is Again, number one, this generation doesn't know the Lord. Number two, they don't know the work which God had done for Israel in the past. And so now it sets up to, well, what happened when a generation like that is not aware of the past? Look at starting in verse 11. It says this, then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among them, or excuse me, and followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus, they provoked the Lord to anger. So let's stop right here. So this generation doesn't know God, but not only do they not know God, verse 12 tells us, or verse 11 tells us that they forsook God. They didn't seek after him like their fathers did. This is a new generation. And they did evil in the sight of God. What did they do? They, they worshipped or served the Baals, which were the gods of the nations that they were going into. Remember last week and the week before, we talked about how each tribe moved into their land, and they didn't defeat the people of the land. They didn't drive them out. They just let them stay there with them. And they started adapting to their culture instead of changing it. And what's wrong with that? Well, you start acting like the rest of the culture that you're around. And they did that. They started adopting false idol worship of the Baals. Verse 13 tells us, not only that, is that they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroth, which was a, the female deity of the land. And they started participating in all kinds of idol worship and pagan idolatry. And this is going to plague Israel really until Jesus comes. <clears throat> the Old Testament talks about it over and over again. So this, gener- this generation that doesn't know the Lord, doesn't know his works, they forsook God and they began to do evil. They left the God that their fathers worshipped and were going to do their own thing. We're not going to behave like our parents. We don't need the Lord, the God that our parents worship. We have our own way of doing things. And you're, as we're going to see, it's going to get them into a lot of trouble. So going back to verse 12, just to, to read from there, or starting in verse 13. So they forsook the Lord, served Baal and the Asheroth, and the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of the enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them, so that they were severely distressed. So what is God's response to his covenant people, even though they don't know him? He's made this covenant that he's going to keep with his, this nation, Israel. God responds to them in a number of ways. Well, number one, he was provoked to anger by them. They brought on God's anger 
And we're going to see what that means in a moment. So he's angry with his people. And when God becomes angry with his people, he has every right to do this anyways. He has the right to discipline them. And that's exactly what he does. Look at verse 12. Or verse, uh, yeah, verse 12. So they follow these other gods. They provoke God to anger. And then in verse 14, what does he do? He gave them to the hands of the plunderers. God will. God desired that the nation of Israel is to be disciplined. And he's going to give them over to all those nations that they left themselves and now begin to worship just like them to those people. You're going to be assimilated into those people. They're going to plunder you. They're going to do what you were supposed to do to them. And it's your own fault. So sometimes we get our own selves in trouble and then we suffer the consequences and we blame God. God, why did you do this? God, why did you let this happen? Well, remember, you wanted to do what you wanted to do. And now you're going to suffer the consequences. So this is what's happening to the nation of Israel. He gives his people in the hands of his enemies. And it even says that he sold them to the hands of the enemies all around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. So from now on, through the book of Judges, the nation Israel is not going to conquer the land. They're going to be fighting just to survive. And we'll see a little bit more of that. And he says, wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them. The Lord is now the one orchestrating this evil against them in a form of discipline. Why, why is God so harsh? What's going on? Well, let's again look at verse 15. It says, wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil. Why? As the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them. So sometime in the past... God had told them already this was going to happen, and he even swore to it. God is faithful to his word. We mentioned this last week just as parents. When we tell our children, if you do this, you're going to suffer the consequences of discipline, right? We have all parents have probably done that with their kids. If you talk back or whatever, you're going to lose some privileges. This is exactly what God did with the nation of Israel. I've already said this, and he's already been lenient over and over again. We'll see that some more in a moment. There is a time when God says, that's enough. I need to discipline you because you're not listening to me. And he says this, that I've spoken this. The God of the covenant keeps his word both good and which we might see as evil. There comes a time where you have to suffer the consequences for what you've done. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to take you back a little bit to this what's called covenant uh, curses, or when Israel disobeys the Lord, what has he said is going to happen to them? And this is why last chapter, if you remember, when the angel of the Lord said he's, he's going to discipline them, they freaked out. They started mourning and repenting and crying. Why? Because they knew what was going to happen. Even though they didn't know God the way that uh, their parents did, that last generation, they knew that God was a God of his word. And what he meant was they're going to suffer. And so let's go back and just walk through Leviticus chapter 26. So turn back with me to Leviticus chapter 26. So we're going to skip around quite a bit. If you remember when we did, we walked through the book of Kings, uh, maybe a couple, I think it was last summer or before that. We went through this because this is very important to understand what God does with the nation Israel. <clears throat> So what we have here, at least in my Bible, it says penalties of disobedience. 
So part of God's covenant is if you do this, he's going to bless them. But if they do this, he's going to discipline them. That's God's covenant. So in verse 14, so stick with me. We're going to jump around here. I'm going to highlight some points. So this is the beginning of the covenant cursings. He says, but if you don't obey me, which is what we see going on in Judges, right? If you don't obey me and do not carry out all these commandments. So God's laid out some commandments for the nation of Israel to keep. And he's told them he's going to bless them if they do them. But if they don't do it, he says, if instead you reject my statutes and if your soul abhors my ordinances so as not to carry out all my commandments and so break my covenants, I in turn will do this to you. This is what God is going to do to his people. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption and fever that will waste away the eyes And cause the soul to pine away. Also you will sow your seed uselessly. For your enemies will eat it up. I will set my face against you. So that you will be struck down before your enemies. And those who hate you will rule over you. And you will flee. When no one is pursuing you. If after all these things you do not obey me. Then I will punish you seven times more. For your sins. So he tells them what he's going to do to them. If they disobey. So God's fair. It's not like God's just mean old man that just punishes Israel every time they misstep. He's given them chances. He's warned them over and over again. But at some point, he's got to discipline them. And not only that, he says this in verse 18. If after these things, so he's saying even in the midst of this punishment, if you were to repent. We'll see that in a moment as well. That I'll forgive you. But he says, if you don't, I'm going to punish you even more severe. Seven times more. So skip down to verse 21 with me of Leviticus 26. So God pronounces some more consequences of discipline on them. And then he says, if then, meaning after I do this, you act with hostility against me and are unwilling to obey me. So even after I discipline you and you still don't want to obey me, God says, I will increase the plague on you seven times according to your sins. He's going to increase the penalty For their disobedience. Drop down to verse 23. He says it again. And if by these things you are not turned to me. So there's a little key. God's disciplining them for what purpose? So that they would turn back. So they would realize the severity of their sin. God is not disciplining just for the fun of it. He's trying to protect them. He wants them to come back to him. So sometimes in tragedies, God uses it so that his people will return back to him. And this is what he says. If by these things you are not turned back to me, but act with hostility against me, then I will act with hostility against you. And I, even I, will strike you seven times for your sins. I will also bring upon you a sword, which will execute vengeance for the covenant. See, for that covenant. This is God's covenant. God's promise to the nation Israel. If you don't follow me, I'm going to discipline you. And if you still don't return, I'm going to discipline you some more. And if you still don't return, I'm going to discipline you some more. I hope you see a little bit of God's grace and long-suffering with his people there as well, not just the punishment side. He says, I will also bring upon you a sword which will execute vengeance for the covenant. And when you gather together in your cities, I will send pestilence among you so that you shall be delivered into your enemy hands, into the enemy's hands. That's what's happening here at Judges. Drop down to verse 27. He continues on. Yet, 
if in spite of this, you do not obey me, you still don't obey me, you would be thinking by this point, they have to see the errors of their ways, but they don't, he says. If you still do this and you act hostile against me, then I will act with wrathful hostility against you and I will punish you seven times for your sins. Again, he reminds them. Drop down to verse 33. You, however, I will scatter among the nations and I will draw out a sword after you. And as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. Now, this happened at the time of Moses when this was given. The nation Israel actually didn't lose their land until after the kings when they were taken by King Nebuchadnezzar. So this was a warning hundreds of years before it actually happened. A promise to them, if you guys don't listen to me at some point, what I'm going to have to do is take your land away from you. If you don't listen. Even then, God still shows mercy. Drop down to verse 40 now. So the, the description is now Israel's fallen so far that they've been taken in captivity. And he says this to those people that are in captivity. If they confess their iniquity. So if they repent. And in the iniquity of their forefathers and their unfaithfulness, which they've committed against me and also in their acting with hostility against me. I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they so that they then make amends for their iniquity. Then I will remember my covenant. Even after all this discipline, God still offers uh, salvation for them in the form of deliverance. I'll still forgive them again. We as parents do this all the time, right? We don't cast our children off forever. We discipline them, make it more harsh, more harsh until they get it. And then we, once they finally get it, we still love them. And this is what God is doing with the nation of Israel. He says, I will remember that covenant that I made with your forefathers way back then. I will still honor that. If you make amends for your name. And I will remember my covenant, verse 42, with Jacob. And I will remember also my covenant with Isaac. And my covenant with Abraham as well. And I will remember the land. For the land will be abandoned by them. It will make up for its Sabbaths while it was made desolate without them. They, meanwhile, will be making amends for their iniquity because they rejected my ordinances. And they, their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet. Well, let's just stop there. I'm not going to read on. You can read on if you want. So he says, hey, you're going to suffer in captivity for a while because you need to pay for your sins. But I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to keep my covenant with you. So now going back to Judges, you get a sense of God says, I made this covenant a long time with them. They've disobeyed. So though now they're going to suffer the consequences of that. Just as God had spoken, he says in Judges 2.15, and as the Lord had sworn to them. God is the God of his word. Again, don't mistake God's grace and mercy for accepting what we're doing as a people. So verse, let's, now let's look at verse 16. So God's response to this new generation again, he was provoked to anger for their actions. He became angry with them. He's going to discipline them. But in the midst of this disciplining throughout Judges, this is what he's going to do. So here the author kind of gives us a summary of what's going to happen with the nation of Israel. Look at verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges, even when they're disobedient. The Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. So God gives them into the hands of the people to plunder them, remember? 
and then he's going to provide deliverers for them to pull them back out because he cares for them and he loves them. And he says, look at verse 17, yet they did not listen to their judges. They're like, are you serious, Israel? Yet they did not listen to the judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had worked in obeying the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do as their fathers. So God says, I'm going to put you into captivity, but I'm going to provide deliverers for you. And we'll moment we'll read why he does that as well. well. Actually, let's just do that. Look at verse 18. Why does he do that when they're disobedient? He says, when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. And this is why. For the Lord was moved with pity by their groanings because of those who oppressed them and afflicted them. Because they cried out to God. Sometimes that's all it takes is crying out to God in repentance and God will deliver you. He promised that back in Leviticus. I will deliver you. Sometimes you'll still have to suffer a little bit, but I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to deliver you. That's why God did it. God is a loving God. Again, so many times people look at the Old Testament, and God was mean and wrathful and judgmental. No, right here, God's loving and patient and kind with his people. But even God sometimes has to discipline his people because he needs to shake them up and get a hold of them and say, you're not listening to me. You know, I was watching, uh, I was re-watching that show, John Adams. It was an HBO special a while back. I don't know if you've ever seen it. And uh, not comparing, um, John Adams is the antithesis of God the Father, by the way. Um, if you've ever, has anybody seen it besides me? Okay, thank you. Somebody's out there with me. Thank you. There's this scene where uh, John Adams' son, uh, when I think it was his youngest son, was just a drunkard, and threw away his life, spent his money, and John Adams goes to his son, and he, and he renounces this. And he says, I renounce you, like I'm done with you. And his, and his son's all, have mercy on me, Father, please. And John just turns his back on him and forgets him the rest of his life. God doesn't, I thought, God doesn't do that. God is a lot better than human fathers. Because that kid was repentant. He's like, no, have, like, mercy, forgive me, Father. I'm, I'm dumb, you know, I can't believe it. He didn't say those words. And John Adams, is, I renounce you. God doesn't renounce his children. And you see in that here in Judges. He doesn't renounce them. He hears them. He hears their plea. Even though he knows, hey, they're going to fall back, but I'm going to come back and get them. Every time I'm going to come back and get them. God is the total opposite of that. So God hears the words of his people. And he raises up deliverers for his people. He delivers them. God keeps his promises even when... God's people don't. Going back to verse 17, the author made this clear. When God sends his judges, not everybody listens. Look at verse 17. We read this already, but now understanding what's going on. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. And they turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked, obeying the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do as their fathers. So what's going to happen here? is they're going to get delivered, and during the time of the judges, everyone's going to be on their best behavior. But when that judge dies, they're quickly going to go back to their old lifestyle. 
Some of them probably didn't, and that's why God allows it. Some of them really were saved and transformed, but others still kept in their hearts a passion for the culture that they're living in. They didn't really want, they just wanted out of trouble is what they really wanted. And quickly they turned back to these other gods. And they did not listen to the judges. There was some initial resistance. And they did not completely rid themselves of their sinful ways. Let's look at verse, um, look at verse 19. It says this, but it came about when the judges died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers and following other gods to serve them and to bow down to them. And they did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. So some still harbored, you know what? I want God's deliverance, but I don't want to obey him. Right. I want that get out of jail free card, but I don't want to completely follow him. And God knows that when his people do that. So what does God do? Verse 20. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he said. So this they reach that point of no return. Eventually, this is what's going to happen. So the anger of the Lord turned against Israel and he said, because this nation, he doesn't even call them my nation. He says this nation, those people. Has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded the fathers and has not listened to my voice. I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which. Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not. So the Lord allowed those nations to remain, not driving them out quickly. And he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. That's kind of like the end of the summary is that, hey, this is what's going to happen for the rest of the history in the Old Testament is God's going to leave those nations in those countries to test Israel, to find out, not to entice them to sin. That's not what he's talking about, and I'll, I'll mention that in a moment. But to find out who's really a true follower of Yahweh. You see, God would eventually allow them to be completely overrun. Why? To find out who's truly his. Because those who are truly, God, who are truly God's, when adversity comes, will cry out to God and cling to God. And those who aren't, will shake their fist at God. And I, ha- I can't help but seeing that in our nation now as we see this craziness going. True, pe- true pe- believers of God are crying out to God, asking God for help. They're not looking to the government. They're not looking for civil leaders or even the people. We need God to intervene. True believers will do that when hard times come. You see, God uses trials, we're told here, to strengthen the faith of his people. In order to test them. And then that word test is really talking about proving the quality of a person. Not enticing them to sin. God doesn't test us like, hey, I'm going to put this, you know, this temptation in front of my son and cause him to fall. That's not what God does. Right. God is trying to prove the quality of someone through adversity. That that quote I said earlier. Right. A good sailor is not made through smooth seas. Right. It's the rough seas. The heart and think about all of us who are trying to learn a new skill or a new trade or a hobby or a sport. We have to put in the hard work to become better. It doesn't just happen. The same thing is true with the Christian life. We grow in our strength and our faith and our walk when we go through hard times. We cling close because we trust God more. We cling to God more and we trust on him and rely on him and he helps us to get through it. And then we continue to trust God even more. It's not that we did anything great. It's like we just trust God even more and he gets us through it. 
And so that's what God is going to do with the nation of Israel from now on. And you're going to see that as we go through Judges over and over again. And if you go through Kings again on your own, you'll see that happening over and over again. So God is refining the character of his people through adversity so that they might walk more closely to him. Look at Judges chapter 3 real quick at the beginning. It kind of gives us a little more insight into the trials of Israel. Judges 3 says this. Now, these are the nations which the Lord left. So God left them there. Why? To test Israel by them. That is, all who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan. So this new generation has inherited this land. It didn't have to fight for it. They don't know what the past generation went through to get here. And so God is saying, well, part of the reason why God is leaving this people there is so that this new generation will grow up and be able to experience war and really experience trusting God in the midst of it. Only, going on to verse 2, only in order that the generation of the sons of Israel might be taught war, those who had not experienced it formally. And go down to verse 4 of chapter 4. They were for testing Israel to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord which he had commanded their fathers through Moses. That's part of the testing, to build up their character, to cause them to obey God even more, and to reveal that to them, so that they could see that I could come through this, I could trust God in the midst of tragedy. And this is what God is doing. I can't help but to think of in the book of Acts, where God strengthened the church. How did he strengthen the church? Through persecution. The church became stronger and bolder, and proclaimed the gospel even more in the midst of persecution. It wasn't in the midst of a good time, and all the Roman Empire loved the Christians. No, they didn't, they didn't like them, but Christianity continued to grow. And just from a personal level, how do you fare when times get tough in your own life? Do you draw closer to God, or do you draw further away from God? I like what one commentator said about this section of Scripture. He says, The constant pressure from a a pagan culture would prove who the genuine believers really were. The book of uh, Revelation talks about that. Is that when pressure comes from society, those who are really gods will stand firm and stand strong. Those who are not will quickly fall away. They will cave in. They will act like the rest of the world, to be liked by this world, to get along. So they're not persecuted. Unfortunately, sometimes the church grows through persecution. We are a result of that, right? The people that were being persecuted in Europe came over to the United States because they wanted to um, worship God the way they wanted to and established Christian churches here. Sometimes I want, to, I want another Mayflower. I want to get on a Mayflower and go worship somewhere where I won't be bugged by the government. But does anybody know that world? Mindy said Greenland this morning. We can go to Greenland. Let's just all go. We'll just, there's that big boat. <laughs> no, they just built Noah's Ark back in, back in the south. Let's go there and just go travel and get out of here. Unfortunately, there's, I don't think there's a place we're going to be able to go. So we need to pray for a revival. So let's just move into a time of application. So what can we learn from this section of Judges? 
I want to point out a few things, and I'm sure you've learned some things on your own. That Number one, God keeps his covenant. God keeps his promises, both positive and unfortunately, when, we're in tr- when we get ourselves in trouble, negatively. Negatively. Why? To cause us to come back. So we shouldn't look at discipline as such a bad thing from God. It, he's trying to cause us to come back. So with God keeping his covenant should be, number one, it should be a comfort to us that God keeps his word. And it's also a warning that God keeps his word. Remember Judges chapter 2, I think it was in verse 1, when the angel of the Lord came and spoke to Israel, he says, I brought you out of Egypt and I led you into the land which I had sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. God never breaks his covenant with his people. So again, I hope that brings you comfort and is also a warning to us as the people of God. Number two, what we should learn from this is that God is patient and long-suffering with his people. He was patient and long-suffering with the nation of Israel over and over again, as I've said this over and over. They sin, they cry out to him, God forgives them. They fall away from him, he allows them to be punished, but they cry out in repentance, he delivers them. I hope you see the parallel in our own lives when we sin against God. And we cry out for forgiveness. He forgives us. He delivers us. In a sense. He's delivered us from eternal separation from him for all eternity, number one. But in our day-to-day lives, how many times do we sin against God over and over again? Sometimes the same thing over and over again. And God promises to forgive us. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, isn't he? That's what First John says. God's patient and long-suffering with his people. Number three, God has raised up the greatest deliverer for his people, has he? We see in Judges a foreshadow of the coming deliverer. God's always providing a deliverer. Who's that deliverer now? Jesus Christ, who delivered us once and for all. He doesn't need to raise up another deliverer because if you're in Christ, you've been delivered. You're completely free. And we'll feel the total consummation of that at his second coming when we'll be free from this body of sin, from this sinful culture, from our own sinful desires. That's something to look forward to, all because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Number four, God hears the groanings of his afflicted people. We should be comforted in that. Now, I know that, hey, but... When I cry and groan over something, I don't get delivered right away. Sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. But God hears us. He knows what he's doing. He's working all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God hears your groanings and your affliction. And number four, God will use trials to strengthen the faith of his people. So whatever we're going through right now, whether it's self-inflicted or maybe God has allowed us to be in something right now. We need to look at it from God's point of view is that he's using this to develop and strengthen our faith, to prove our character. 
In the book of James, I'll read this one last verse to you. Book of James, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Here James is speaking to a church who's probably suffering some persecution. He says this, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Why? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Look at the trial that you're going through, whatever it may be, as something that God wants to use and can use to strengthen our faith and trust in him to build us up. So, again, I'll ask you a question I asked earlier. How do you how do you fare when times get tough? Do You draw closer to God. Or further away from him. Now let me end with this, this quote. It's going to come up here. It's a great picture. And if you could see that. See that big wave? It looks like there's teeth coming. Like Jaws is right there. It's like Shark Week. That quote says this. I'm not afraid of the storms. For I'm learning to sail my ship. I'm like. I want to read Moby Dick now. I'm just like all these sailor things. But read. Think of that for a minute. I'm not afraid of storms, for I'm learning how to sail my ship. In our faith, when the storms come, that's how we should tackle it. I'm learning how to grow in my faith. Not like, and it's easy to go, oh, woe's me, why is this happening to me? And, and sit in the corner and suck your thumb. Sometimes we want to do that, and that's okay. But at some point, we need to get up and say, you know what? God can use this for his glory. He can strengthen me. I can learn how to sail my ship in the midst of this. And so when the next storm comes, we're going to be way ahead of it. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, we are so grateful for your word. I pray that each and every one of us this morning, no matter where we are in our walk with you, that we see your hand of providence over all things. And Lord God, for those men and women in this room this morning who are your people, I pray, Lord God, that they would be strengthened and encouraged by the fact that you are in control of all things, that you keep your covenant, and you will also discipline us when we start to stray or when we sin against you, not because you're mean and evil, but because you love us and you want us to grow closer to you and you want to keep us from evil. So that's why you put those borders around us and these and these commandments so that we would stay close to you and not be drawn away by our culture or by our own sinful nature. Lord God, I pray for those men and women who are your children who have fallen away this morning. They see themselves as a nation of Israel bowing down to the culture, bowing down to something other than you and serving it rather than the creator. And maybe they're even in in some area of discipline in their lives right now by you, that they would see that, Lord God, and know that that is your loving hand of punishment on them to call them back and that they would return back to you. And I pray for men and women this morning who have, who don't know you as Lord or Savior, who don't see a need for you, Lord God, that they would see this as a warning that the God of Israel is the God of this world and he keeps covenant. And Lord God, they would stop shaking their fist at him. 
and complaining about the way you operate in this world because you are the one who created it and you create all rules for this world. And I pray, Lord, that they would soften their hearts and that you would open their eyes and ears and they would hear what you're saying to them, that you want them to know you. You want to be their God. You want to go out before them. So I pray that they would hear that this morning as well. Lord God, we love you. Forgive us for our sins against you when we stray, when we willfully disobey those things that you've called us to do. We're so thankful that you're there to forgive us. And so, Lord God, we as a church ask for your forgiveness for anything we've done that's brought shame and dishonor to you. Anything in our lives that looks as if we're bowing down to another God, we ask for your forgiveness. And you would help us, Lord God, to walk in a way that is worthy of the calling that you've called us to. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.